Good morning and welcome. May the Lord bless you this morning. I uh, just want to make a uh, notation. I don't think it was mentioned in the announcements. Um, there's a new issue of uh, Calvary Magazine, and it covers, uh, it's basically a memorial issue uh, for Mrs. K. Smith. She passed in the last year. And uh, it kind of, th that's an interesting uh, article in there because it kind of gives the history of the movement. And so uh, make sure you grab one on the way out. And with that, let's turn our Bibles to Acts, <clears throat> Acts chapter 13, and we want to pick up this morning in verse 13, and we're going to read until verse 41. So we're kind of biting off a big chunk of the Bible there. Acts thirteen thirteen. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch uh, in Pisidia, not the same as Syria, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers, exalted the people. And when they dwelled as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm, <coughs> excuse me, he brought them out. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. And after that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. And so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had reproved him, or removed him rather, <clears throat> excuse me, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. And from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. And after John had first preached, before his coming, the baptism of repentance uh, to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Do you think that who I am? I am not he. Uh, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. And men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, uh, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. Uh, and, and though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that which was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. 
And he was seen for many days by those who came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are witnesses to the, to the people. And we declare to you the glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And, then, and that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. And he has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. That's a quotation from Isaiah. Uh, excuse me. Uh, uh, yeah, it is Isaiah, I think. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, he fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and he saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption, speaking of Christ. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And so he gives a, Lord, a word of warning here. Uh, Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. And quoting here from Habakkuk. Behold, you despisers, uh, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will no, by no means believe, though one were to, to declare it to you. And let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that the word of God has been declared to us. And Lord, we thank you that you have also granted faith. Lord, uh, we, we praise you for the great and good news of the gospel, that you have sent, Lord, your Redeemer. You have sent a Savior for all mankind. And Lord, as we now preach this gospel, as it has been for these last 2,000 years, Lord, we see how needy our world is. It's in need of salvation, in need of redemption. And Lord, we pray that, Lord, as your word goes out today, not only in this place, but Lord, throughout our country, throughout our world, that people, Lord, would receive the, the lifesaver of your word and to receive, Lord, the glorious redemption and all that you offer. And Lord, also, too, as we come to the communion table today, we are thankful for the forgiveness of sins. Thankful, Lord, for justification. Lord, to be justified before you, no matter what our past is. Lord, you're so awesome. You're so incredible. How we love you. How we thank you for all that you have wrought on our behalf. And Lord, all you're asking us to do, just believe. Just believe it and receive it. And we praise you and thank you. And ask you, Lord, to bless our time as we look at these things closer now. Father, we pray that you would bless the stream as it goes out. Lord, uh, thank you. Lord, uh, the scripture says your, your word and your truth runs very swiftly. And how we pray, Father, that your truth would unearth, Lord, the lies that are in our culture, the lies about you. Lord, uh, and the glorious purpose, Lord, for which you've come. So, Lord, we, uh, we thank you for this. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, Paul is giving um, this group of believers, this group of individuals, we don't know how many believers there are at this point, he's giving them a sort of a, a lesson in history and how easy it is for us, I think, to forget history. 
Uh, we see that in our world. We see that in our culture. And he's going to give them, you know, the, the thing when we see, you know, the Bible, it gives us the history of, of humanity, the history of mankind. And, uh, and, and here Paul is pointing out some very important things uh, to them regarding the gospel. Uh, and he's traveling here with his group there. Their, uh, their custom, as they arrive here in Pisidia, their custom would be to go into a synagogue. That was obviously a place where the Bible had been taught, um, even more so uh, than any other place to go. And, of course, uh, there were two different groups there. There were, there were the, the, the Jews, uh, but there were also two God-fearers. Uh, these were Gentiles that attached themselves uh, you know, to Judaism. They saw the morality of biblical Judaism, and, and of course that was up against the, the, you know, the uh, decline and the corruption you know, that we see in our world, in our culture. I think there's many even people today as they maybe consider um, what's going on in our world, in our culture, and so forth. Uh, I believe, you know, they think about, you know, is there something we can do? You know, sometimes uh, people will send their children to church because they want uh, their kids to be, you know, uh, to get some kind of biblical education, some kind of moral instruction out there. And, uh, and so as we see here uh, in our particular story, they get to the, uh, to the um, synagogue, they're in the Sabbath, and it's an opportunity, you know, for Paul to speak, and he speaks with relish. Um, you know, he is, you know, his background, he's, he's, he's educated, he's a rabbi, he's a teacher, and so he has a great biblical background. So he begins here with the history of his people, with his people Israel, and he's touching on some of not only the low points, but the high points as well. Um, and again, as we look at the Bible, we're seeing here, and that's why the Bible is always so relevant, uh, basically, it speaks to the history of human nature, of, of humankind, it, it speaks of our failures, and in all of those things. That's why so, so often when you, when you look at the Bible, you realize it may have been penned out by people, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's divine instruction because the things that the Bible speaks about are not things that we would admit as human beings. Uh, the Bible is very, very uh, frank and open and careful to you know, point out all the failures of, of human nature and the fall of man. But not only does it do that, also, too, it gives us you know, hope um, it provides an answer, you know, the redemption that we have through our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. You know, George Santayana, he said that whenever we ignore or forget history, uh, that basically we're doomed, we're condemned to repeat it. And we see that taking place, you know, in our culture, in our society. Uh, you know, why have, so many, why have so many school systems in our nation uh, eliminated American history? Uh, you know, there's a lot of things I think we can learn from our history, whether it's good or whether it's bad. Uh, and I think there's this, you know, amazing erasure, um, you know, of, you know, our history and so forth. And I think there's many things that we can learn. I was just reading an article by a Canadian author, uh, and it made a lot of sense when he said this. He said, it's, oft, it's often said that the ideas, that ideas have consequences. Ordinary men and women intuitively understand that good ideas yield good results while bad ideas produce bad decisions uh, and tragic consequences. Over the last century, the avant-garde ideas about the nature of progress have produced a, com a compulsive desire for intellectual certainty and immediate self-gratification. Today, historical experience and examples set by preceding generations are generally regarded as irrelevant to the conditions of modern humanity. I was just kind of speaking about that just uh, uh, having grown up, uh, come of age as a teenager in the 1960s, there was just this casting off of any kind of restraint. Uh, 
uh, as if every previous generation was wrong and irrelevant. And, uh, and when we think about what took place in the 1960s, you know, the uh, tremendous changes, you know, that, uh, the you know, tectonic shifts in our, you know, the culture and the morality and so forth, uh, has got us where we are today. And our author ends up by saying this, he says, for centuries, religious truths and timeless common sense taught us that genuine happiness lay in pursuing virtue and accepting limits. And how important that is because we live in a culture that doesn't want to accept any, any kind of limits. And there's always, you know, some, you know, some new conventional wisdom that's out there, you know, in our society, in our culture. And we have to be very careful. We, have, we, we are given a divine wisdom from above that comes to us through the word of God and through the spirit of God. And we need to apply the wisdom, you know, that God gives to us. That's why, you know, when you see so many people, and I can remember how, you know, in, in the, past, you know, the past decades, it seemed to be um, that certain trends would, would just sort of last for, you know, maybe a generation or a decade or whatever the case may be. It's amazing how quickly transition and change has taken place in our world and in our culture. Um, and, uh, and, and we see the danger of it. We see the wreckage. We see the devastated lives out there. And again, we've got something. We've got truths that, to hold on to and to communicate, you know, to our culture. Sometimes, you know, I think we kind of back off, you know, we're kind of, a, you know, afraid that, you know, people will maybe, you know, judge us, whatever the case may be. But remember, truth is power. Truth has power to impact people's lives, to change their lives, to, to uh, you know, truth certainly will convict us. There's no doubt about that. And I think sometimes we're, you know, you know we're, we're so afraid of, you know, of someone being offended. And I've always said this, the truth is an equal opportunity offender. I get offended all the time when I read the Bible, and it's a good kind of offense. I, I you know, we need God's truth, you know, to get into our lives, to challenge us and to change us. Um, and so as, as Paul goes on here, he's basically, he's rehearsing history here um, relative to God's grace and mercy and, and how God's favor has been with his people through thick and thin. Uh, and, and it says here in verse 21, and afterward, well, that's where we're going to pick up here, they asked for a king, speaking of, of Israel, and there's so many lessons to learn. You know, sometimes we look at Israel, you know, um, you know, through a microscope and so forth, and we look at, you know, uh, you know, their failures, their setbacks, and, you know, uh, as God called them to be a special people, and of course, you know, they, they certainly are. Um, yet we find uh, that in many respects, they did not live up, you know, to all that God called them to live up to. Uh, there's many lessons here, I think, for us, for the church, you know, when we look at Israel, when we look at the Old Testament, when we look at the, the history there. You know, again, God's, you know, biblical history speaks to us, it speaks to our humanity, it speaks to our particular situation. You know, sometimes as I think about maybe the failures, you know, of the nation of Israel in their, in their inability and failure to really truly represent God, uh, really I look at the church, you know, have we, you know, we claim, you know, because we, we've, you know, there's been the uh, coming of Messiah, there's been the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You know, we have more, in a sense. We have more revelation uh, than those folks had. Uh, and yet, when you look at the, 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 seem, the seemingly inability of, of the church today, um, I mean, for instance, to simply look at, look at the impact. You know, what kind of impact are we making in American culture? Uh, not, not very good. Not much of an impact at all. And... Um, and so, you know, as we look at here the history, we, we see 
and we can learn from 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 Israel, um, you know, their particular lessons. He 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 speaks about uh, Saul and David here in these first two verses of twenty one and twenty two. And Saul was remember the people's choice, and and David was God's choice. You know, he was you know he was the one that uh, God had raised up, and uh, and and a man too that uh, had. Uh, he had made, you know, great mistakes. You know, he spoke about in one of his, uh, I think it was maybe in Psalm 19, he speaks about uh, not making great transgression, but he did. Um, and yet we see God's mercy and favor, you know, to this man. And one of the things that, that here we're reminded of, uh, that we're told that he was a man after God's own heart. You know, when you think about it, when you think about David, when you, you know, you think about his great mistakes, his great transgression, where he basically stole a man's wife, uh, took advantage of her, and then had the man murdered. And uh, the prophet Nathan coming to him and, uh, and pointing a, a finger at him. And the, thing, the difference between Saul and David was uh, Saul was a man, his life, his entire life was marked by disobedience. And at the end of his life, I, 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 it's sort of like he, he says something, it's sort of like an epitaph that you could put on his gravestone. He said, I have played the fool. And, and again, just a man who is gifted when you look at, you know, God uh, empowering him, enabling him uh, to fulfill the, the, the particular ministry as a king uh, to lead the people, that he failed greatly. But the thing about David, even though David had failures, you know something, David had a repentant heart. David had a heart. That's why, you know, God could say he had a, David had a, a, he had a heart after me. Uh, and even with, you know, even with our failures, you know, even with our setbacks, you know, sometimes when somebody has a great failure, there's a tendency sometimes to just sort of maybe mark that person and, you know, like, well, God's finished with them kind of a thing. But, you know, when we come to the Bible, we find a little bit different story there. You know, we find the incredible magnanimous grace of God, you know, at work in situations. I, you know, I'll be honest with you. When you look at David, if David was a pastor today and, and, and given what he did, he'd never get into a pulpit again. You could be sure about that. And yet, as we look at him, you know, we, we look at him from a different vantage point, uh, and we see God's mercy, we see God's grace, you know, at work within his life. Uh, and I think that's what Paul, in a sense here, is wanting to, to, to bring out here. Again, David was a, he was a type of Messiah, to a degree. He was an imperfect type, but yet uh, we see, you know, we see that, uh, you see Moses, uh, you see Joseph, uh, you see Abraham, um, in, in many different ways, their lives were, were typical. They were a type of, you know, the Lord who was to come. You see the prophets, you know, they were, yet they were just men. They were individuals who had great failings and setbacks, yet uh, we see that God wonderfully continued to, to use them. And so he says here in, uh, <clears throat> from David in verse 3, his, his, his progeny, his seed, that he would fulfill the promise that God had given and raise up for Israel a Savior, uh, Jesus. So again, here, the, this, the, he's the theme of all Scripture. He is the theme of all Scripture, the Lord. That's why when you study, the, even, you know, you look at sometimes obscure passages, um, there's something there. And that's, you know, that's the challenge, I think, in my life anyway, as a pastor, as I teach the Bible, to bring that out, to, to point, in a sense, to Messiah, because that's really what the, the entire Old Testament history was doing. It was a signpost. It was uh, pointing to, to him who was to come. Um, and, and some of the figures and their, their, you know, their, their certain characteristics about their life, they were all pointing 
to the one who would come, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even John, even John, uh, you know, as, as he comes on the scene, he was announced. He was announced in Isaiah. Uh, I think it's chapter 40. He's announced in the book of Malachi. And, uh, and basically he comes on basically as a voice and, and, and preaching and, and doing his, uh, you know, baptizing unto repentance. And, um, you know, the thing about repentance is very important. We're, gonna, we, we're, we're thinking about that today because we're coming to the communion table. Um, repentance is simply this. It's, it's an openness to change. Um, I remember when I first got saved, my, I had a, you know, you have certain definitions. You, sometimes you come, to, you come to Christ and you come to the Lord and you have certain definitions. Um, and uh, repentance for me was, you know, I had a picture in my mind of just sort of tearing my clothes and throwing dust up in the air. And I think it was sort of like an Old Testament picture I had. Maybe it was something I picked up in the movies, but I can remember clearly thinking of that. And, and the thing that just kind of like, well, I've come to the Lord, I give my life to the Lord, but I don't quite feel like that, Okay. But, but repentance is simply a willingness and an openness to change. In those areas where the Lord wants to change us, I was just reading, I don't know if you get uh, Alistair Begg's website, but he, you know, he sends things out. Uh, he sends out a da daily devotional, and uh, this is uh, written by C.H. Spurgeon, and it says this regarding uh, the whole matter of repentance. He says, true sorrow for sin is eminently practical. No man can say that he hates sin if he lives in it. Repentance makes us see the evil of sin, not merely as a theory, but experientially. True mourning for sin will make us very careful with our tongue uh, in case it would say the wrong word. Uh, we will be very watchful over our daily actions in case uh, there's anything whereby we might offend. Each night we end the day with painful confessions of shortcomings, uh, things of this particular nature. Uh, there's, there's many times, you know, after the fact, sometimes, you know, you say something in a conversation um, or you act in a certain way and maybe you're unkind. And, you know, we have a, we have a way sometimes of uh, immediately maybe just sort of brushing it off because of the circumstances. But I tell you what, so many times when I'm alone, you know, with the Lord, all of a sudden I realize, well, I shouldn't have said that. That, was, that, was, that wasn't right. That, that was unkind. Um, that was insensitive. And, uh, and I think that when we, you know, when we come to that place, you know, where the Holy Spirit's kind of dealing with our hearts and dealing with our lives in that kind of way, uh, that's repentance, to just own it, you know, to just own it and say, yes, Lord, you are right. Lord, forgive me. Um, <laughs> uh, I got a phone call last night, and it was kind of, it was really just out of nowhere, and uh, my cousin was at some kind of a banquet. And the names were on the table. And uh, there was somebody at his table that I went to high school with. And um, his name was Rob, Robert Nemo. And uh, I remember he was, we were in school, in uh, parochial school together. And uh, my cousin picks up the phone to call me. Because they're talking, you know, my old friend is talking to my cousin about me, and my cousin's telling him, you know, because I haven't seen this this uh, Rob Nemo in you know 55 years, kind of a thing, and so they're they're talking about. It. He says, "Hey, well, let me call me calls calls me up," and and I can hear all this all this background noise, of, you know, a banquet and music and noise kind of going on, and 
And, uh, and Rob Nemo gets on the phone, and he says, do you remember when you beat me up? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, the, the, the beautiful thing about the Lord in your life, he has a wonderful way of making us, getting used to repenting. And the more you repent, the easier it gets. And, uh, and that was the first thing I thought of. Oh, I'm sorry, Rob. I didn't mean to do that. You know, kind of a thing. Oh, Lord, you're, uh, you're, you're amazing. And it just reminded me to pray for the guy, just to, to pray that the Lord would, you know. I believe sometimes there's a little context like that. Um, you know, it's an opportunity to, you know, just, you know, maybe for a future witness to someone and, and uh, you know, or just simply to pray for that person. You know, God is so, uh, God is so, he is so good. So he's addressing here in verse uh, uh, 26 here, both Jew and Gentile, because um, there, were, there was in the mix there, they, called, they would call God, they were God-fearers. There were Gentiles, there were proselytes. Again, they saw something valuable in Judaism. They saw morality there. Uh, and again, you know, God was, God was that was, that was the, one of the purposes for the nation of Israel. It was to be a witness to the world, to communicate to the world that, that here is a people that have a relationship with the true and the living God. We have that as well. We have that as well. We have a deeper revelation because we've come along much later. Uh, and because of, you know, the outpouring of the, the, the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, you know, within our hearts and within our life. And so, and so here, is, here, is, here, is, uh, uh, here is Paul. You know, here he is. He's, he's, he's equipped. He's filled, you know, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And there's something about when the Holy Spirit is working, you know, in your life, he wants to work through your life. And, and, and God is working here through this man. And maybe these folks there... You know, in Pisidia, in Antioch, Pisidia, there, maybe they've never heard this before. I, I'll tell you what, when I heard the gospel for the first time, I'd never heard it before. I had been around religion for a long, long time. But there was something about the truth in the gospel that just it was light that flooded into the darkness of my soul. And I think a lot of times, folks, we take it for granted because we've been saved for a long time. Maybe we've grown up, you know, within, you know, a Christian home. And grown up within the church, maybe we've known the Lord for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And, and sometimes we simply take for granted, you know, the, what we have, the, you know, the truth that we have, the light that we have, the insight that we have, the Lord that we have. That he wants to just simply, you know, break out of our life, you know. Sometimes we, we can kind of contain him. And I think we have to be very careful of that. You know, there's people out there, man, God wants to save folks. There are so many people out there that we know, that we bump, you know, rub elbows with. Um, they're, 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 they're unsaved. And, and you and me, we're, we're the gospel. We're the gospel, you know, according to whatever your particular name is. And so <clears throat> he says here, and we're in verse 26, the family of Abraham, you who fear God, he, you who, uh, um, to you is this word of salvation been sent. You know, the Old Testament speaks about the fact that, you know, uh, the world has been waiting. You know, the first thing that Margie said to me when she got saved, she got saved the night before. And it was Friday morning, and we were both getting dressed to get, go to work. She said, she said this to me, and it, and it struck a chord to me, even though I didn't know what she was talking about. It struck a chord to me because I believe that the whole world 
is waiting for something more. That's why people are always on a search. There are people that are always on a quest. And she said this to me. She said, Ray, you know the thing you've been waiting for your whole life? I found it. So, I mean, it piqued my curiosity. Oh, yeah? What is it? It's Jesus. And I think I said, oh, no. <laughs> that, that's not who I was looking for. But in a sense, who, it's who I was waiting for. You know, over in Isaiah chapter 25, I remember reading this when we were doing Isaiah just a short time ago. And uh, Isaiah says this, it, it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him and we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And so again, you have that whole Old Testament group of people. They're waiting. And even though many who were waiting, they, you know, when he come, when he came, they didn't realize it. They, they didn't fully understand that. And again, we're waiting, you know, in a sense for the Lord and for his, you know, for his work, you know, within our lives. And the problem is, I think, oftentimes, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the heart and soul gets jaded. You know, the, the Jewish people settled for ritual. Now, that ritual had a design. It had a purpose, okay, the sacrificial system. Uh, the dietary system, all those things had a purpose. All those things were pointing to the Lord in some way or another. But what happened with many of them, of course, there was, a, there was always a remnant, okay? We, and you see that there was that, that remnant that when the Lord comes, they recognize him, okay? But oftentimes it was the, the, the religious folks, the intelligentsia, you know, they're the ones that, you know, they, they were willing to settle for something else. I think in the Gentile world, too, um, even though the gospel's been out here now. You know, when Christ came, the, the, the news of his coming was out there for close to 2,000 years. So here we are another 2,000 years later after he has come. And, and, and we see how, you know, people are just sort of, you know, they're sort of rejecting, even though they don't realize they're waiting. You know, Paul says it, and I think in Romans, where he says, the world creation is groaning. It's groaning for redemption. It's groaning for meaning. It's groaning for purpose. And the Gentile world has, has, has sort of tried to find that in, you know, whether it's sex or whether it's money or whether it's some form of idolatry or whatever the case may be, you know, self-fulfillment, entertainment, those kinds of things. But it's amazing how, you know, as, as, as people, you know, live their life and, 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 you know, we have so many ways to distract us in this Western world because we have incredible resources, incredible, you know, money. To just keep, you know, well, whatever, what's the next big thing, you know? And thinking that maybe, you know, maybe that, you know, will fulfill me. It's like the woman at the well, remember? As Jesus comes. And I believe that, you know, most of the time, the Jews did not go through Samaria. They went around Samaria up into Galilee because there were Samaritans there. They were half-breeds. Uh, they were a religious cult. But he goes through Samaria, and he's at the well there at Sychar, and there's a woman. And I believe that that was God's designed to meet her on that day. And she had all these marriages and all these relationships, and she was presently living with a man. And what she was simply doing, like so many people, you know, whether, it, you know, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's drugs, whether, whatever it is, it's trying to fill that void. And here, on that day, he introduces himself. She begins to talk in messianic terms. 
He says, I, I who speak to you am he. Imagine that. Imagine all the people that didn't want him. Here is this, this gal whose life is an absolute mess. That, that, that's why when you look at the stories of the, in, the, in, the, in the gospel and the Bible, they do reveal the incredible grace of our God and, and who he reaches out to, the, the, the wrecked lives, the, the people that have just tried everything. He goes on to say in verse 27, <clears throat> speaking of the, uh, the Jewish folks in Jerusalem, because they did not know him, they didn't know the voices of the prophets either, that is in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. And so, again here, it's all a plan and purpose of redemption that he would be put on a cross. Kind of hard to reconcile that, isn't it? That yet in their evil. And one thing you have to realize too when you read the, read, the, read the scriptures is that sometimes the Jewish people have been blamed for crucifying Jesus. You see Pilate you see the Roman government, okay? That's representative of the Gentile world. And the fact of the matter is, folks, because of the plan of redemption, we all put him on the cross. We all put him on the cross. He had to go to the cross. That was the incredible plan in order to save mankind. That we would put very simply our, our faith and our belief in that sacrifice. I think it's kind of hard for us. I think it was easier in one sense for the Jewish nation to receive him for this sense because they grew up within the sacrificial system. You know, the, the, the scriptures said, the Old Testament scriptures said, the, you know, the, the life is in the blood. They were so accustomed to that, that, that there had to be a sacrifice for sin and not realizing that when Messiah come, came, when God came in the flesh, that he would be that lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And there were probably many after the fact, after that happened, oh gosh, we, can, we see it now. <laughs> we can see how it makes sense. We can see how it comes together. I think it was a little bit easier for them to reconcile because of their history. And that's why sometimes when we tell folks today, you know, Jesus went to a cross, he died for your sin. It's like somehow that it's kind of difficult to make the linkage. And of course, it's very difficult because people often think of, you know, hey, I'm a good guy. I'm a good person. I'm just, just ask somebody. Just take a little survey of your unsafe friends to ask them what sin is. And that's very insightful to ask people what sin is. Because whatever they think it is, it isn't something that they're doing, okay? 
You know, sin is Hitler. Sinners are all in prison. They're all murderers. (laughs) But when we come to see the scriptures, we realize what sin really is. And it's sin has done to our world what's going on today when we look at our world. And it's amazing because most people don't even believe in it. So they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. And now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Aren't you thankful that his rising from the grave is our victory? See, nobody has ever risen from the grave. There may have been some great men, the great men in the Bible. May have been some great men in the world. Are, are people who were hailed as great leaders and heroes and that sort of thing. But not one of them had the power to rise up from the grave. I like what Paul says over in his resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. He says, So when this body, or excuse me, this corruptible, he's speaking about the corruption of the human body, <clears throat> has put on incorruption. And this mortal has put on immortality. Just think about that. You and I, because of Jesus Christ, because of his finished work, we're going to be robed in eternal robes. (laughs) No more wrinkles. No more diets. Thank God for that. No more aches and pains. No more, just imagine being the right weight for eternity. I mean, ever since I lost the 20 pounds in COVID, I mean, I'm hopping on the scale like every other day because I want to keep it off. But to have this glorious, and I, I believe this, I believe this when, when you and I get our new body, when you look in the mirror, You're going to say, that's just what I wanted. That's just what I wanted. Thank you, Lord. Because of my height, I've always felt vertically challenged. I don't know, maybe in my new body, I'll be six foot one or two. (laughs) I I don't know, but you know what? I'll be happy with it. We'll be happy. So Paul goes on to say here, when this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass this saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And isn't it amazing that just because of faith and belief in him and his finished work, that he transfers all that accrues, all that accrues, to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, is available to us. To be like him, to have a changed nature, 
to represent him, to be used by him, to be a blessing to other people. You know, I read a thing in Streams in the Desert many years ago, and uh, it was a daily devotional piece, and it was called the Missed Blessings Department. Anybody remember that one? That's an old devotional. The Missed Blessings Department. This guy gets into heaven, and one of, the, one of St. Peter's kind of taking him around, and he says, well, what's in that warehouse over there? And he said, well, that's the Missed Blessings Department. And he said, I'd like to see that. And so he goes in there, and there's all these blessings that were there that were never claimed by the church. <laughs> Paul speaks about it, what? As in riches. It's not monetary. But, but it's spiritual riches. Th things that you and I have available that come to us because of our trust, our faith in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Everything that accrues to him it's available. It's made available to you and I. Peter speaks about it growing, growing in grace and knowledge. Paul speaks about we're given gifts. We're given these spiritual gifts to represent him, to make an impact in our world, in our society, in our culture. Are, are we, are we in any way, are we missing some of the blessings? that are available to us. I think sometimes we do. Sometimes I think we settle for something less than perhaps maybe what the Lord would have, you know, for us. You, maybe you've walked with the Lord for a certain amount of time, maybe many years. Do you think it would be actually possible that the Lord could enable and gift you in a fresh new way to do something you've never done before? I'll tell you what, maybe I'm crazy, but I think he can. Amen. I think he can. Or, or maybe there's something that you have actually... See, that whatever spiritual gifting that, that you may have, you know, in your life, you may not be aware of that. Because how's a it, how's it gift... How does some spiritual gift or enablement uh, actually take place in your life? It operates by faith. It operates by faith. So, somebody may say, well, you know what? I've, I've always wanted to teach a Sunday school class, but I feel incapable. And you may live like that the rest of your life, but you find out when you step into that situation to teach that class, God gives you the wherewithal that you need. One of the things I discovered about being a parent, before we, Margie and I got saved, we had one son in 1974. And we both said this. Margie came from a big family. She came from a big Catholic family, 10 kids. She wanted to have lots of kids. And I said, no. I said, one kid, that's enough. And it was out of a sense of frustration because I didn't really know how to raise a kid. 
Uh, when I grew up, I was a free-range kid. So I didn't have, there was no, no skill set there, there was no tools, there was no reference points there for me. And I remember that was, well, you know, for one kid, that's it. But you know when the Lord came into our lives, man, how that changed, how that wonderfully changed. And you know what? I never had any apprehensions or fear about, you know, when Margie got pregnant, we're having another kid. And, and just the grace and the enabling and the ability to handle that next kid. And I'll tell you what, we raised five kids on a minister's salary, and some of the time we didn't even have medical coverage. You know what? I don't know how we did it. The pie was only so big. But, you know, God did it. But God. That's what you see here in verse 30. But God. You know, when God steps into the equation of the situation, how things just wonderfully, you know, take place and change. Verse 32, he says, But we declared to you glad tidings. That promise which was made to the fathers, again, that good news that God himself has come. He's come to rescue. He's come to save us. And God wants to save us from a wasted life. From a wasted life. The only true meaning in life is with him. He's our creator, right? And he gives life and purpose and meaning. Save us from a wasted life and eternal death. Now, Paul speaks here in verse 33 about fulfillment. This is the third time he speaks about, you know, the fulfillment, and it's the messianic fulfillment, okay, that, that he has come, he is here. And Paul is pressing them, basically, that they might put their faith, you know, in the Lord, in the gospel, the good news that he's basically declaring there. For God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus. And as it is written uh, in the psalm, and again, this is Psalm 2, and it's a messianic psalm. There's, uh, there's messianic uh, references all through the psalms, but there's some psalms that are like they're almost, you know, like Psalm 40. It's like thoroughly messianic. Psalm 2 is messianic as well here. And, and the quotation is, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In other words, begotten from the dead. It's a, it's a reference to resurrection here. But I love what it says at the end of that psalm. It says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish. And what he's saying there is, embrace the son. And here God was saying through David, hundreds of years before Messiah would even come, don't miss the, one, the son when he comes. Kiss him. Em embrace him. You know, that's part of the term worship in the Hebrew. It, it means to, when you worship, it means to kiss toward you ever send somebody a kiss? You ever do, do that? Send, send somebody a kiss, you know, an expression of love. Kiss the son. Embrace him, Paul was saying. That he raised him from the dead no more to, re to return to corruption, for he has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. This is Isaiah uh, 55 he quotes from. And again, uh, speaking about how God was merciful to David. He was. But the point is, as we put our faith in the greater David, 
the mercy, the blessings. And the thing I love about the, mercy, the sure mercies of David, David got sure certain mercies. Those mercies will come to you and me. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter how much your life is a mess. <laughs> the sure mercies are, of David are grace and restoration and repair. Whatever it is that we may need. Therefore, he says in another psalm, this is Psalm 16, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried, and with his fathers, David saw corruption. He didn't rise from the grave. As great as he was. He's really the greatest, the greatest king that Israel ever had. Handpicked by God from a teenager. <laughs> made, he made mistakes. I think I counted somewhere between 12 and 16 wives he had. And the Bible reveals that not to condone it, but to reveal it for what it, what it is because that's what tore David's family apart. Polygamy. That's why the Bible is always faithful to reveal the foibles of man. You know, the, the things we do, the things we practice. The Bible is very careful to show us you know, the, the aftermath and what takes place when we move away from the truth of God and the word of God. And there's only one man that beat the grave. It's a God-man, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, he, he just calls us to, to, to put our faith in him, to put our trust in him. You, you can hear that. You, it's amazing. You, you can cycle through religion and never hear that. I was thinking this morning, uh, I was thinking our country is like all this going on in the world today. It's like the Titanic. We're trying our best to save it. But it's sinking. All nations will sink, the Bible says. And I was thinking about John Harper. John Harper was a pastor. And the accounts, the actual accounts tell us that he would swim in those icy, dark waters of the North Atlantic. He would swim from person to person. And he simply would say this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. <laughs> I wonder how, how many that night believed. It's so simple, isn't it? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Basically, the Old Testament says that without using his name. <laughs> Several years later, a man stood up in Toronto, Canada at a church meeting. 
And somebody in the somebody on the platform in the podium was talking about John Harper. This man stands up in the back of the auditorium. He raises his hand. He says, I am the last convert of John Harper because John Harper gave him his life jacket and soon sunk underneath the water. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Therefore, let it be known to you Brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. What a great gift. What a great gift to be forgiven. To have the past erased. That's what people can't get rid of in this world. You can't get rid of the guilt. You can't get rid of the stain. You can't get rid of the damage from sin. It only comes through Messiah Jesus Christ. To be washed, to be cleansed, to be forgiven. <laughs> what a gift. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things. Justified from all things. <laughs> Somebody once said, justification, you're treated as if, basically, You've never sinned, and you always obeyed. And we know that to be so different than our experience, don't we? But that's justification. As though you never sinned, and you've always obeyed. That, that's the justification that God gives. That's the cleansing. That, that's the glorious benefit but by simply... That's why when you, when you come to Christ and you realize how simple it is to get saved, to think that someone would go into a Christless eternity and there would be the weeping of gnashing of teeth for millennia after millennia after millennia simply because I was too proud to put my faith in the Savior. You realize how crazy it is. Because once you come to know him, you realize how simple it is and how beautiful it is. To know him. Justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. He said, the law of Moses had its place. That's why Paul would say over in, I think, Romans 3.20, by the law, the Mosaic law, is the knowledge of sin. In other words, Moses' law's design was to point out sin. Couldn't empower you, though. That's the thing. I can go down the street and I blow by that sign that says 35 miles an hour. All that does is condemn and point out my wrong behavior. It doesn't give me the power to... <laughs> That's what the Holy Spirit does. He gives us that power, that glorious power. And I'm going to ask the ushers of Phil, come forward and distribute the elements if the worship team will come up. I want to ask you, perhaps, if this may be the first time, and you need to ask Jesus Christ into your life, that as you receive the elements of, of communion here, 
that you're saying by receiving them, Lord, come into my life. Or if maybe there's an issue here that you need, to, you need a new beginning, you need forgiveness, he can do that for you. As we're worshiping, if there's something you need to just sort of relinquish, give up, confess, turn it over to the Lord. Let's do that. And then in just a few minutes, we'll, we'll share together.